0: I know I have more baby announcements, but I haven't actually been told I can announce other baby announcements, so I'm going to hold off on any further baby announcements. Hey, hey, you just have to tune in next week, you know? If you don't like the message, at least you'll have a reason to come back. (laughs) Got to do what we can. All right, well, this morning, you know, Peter was reminding me that when we started the Freedom Series, it started off with the idea that it'd be about four weeks. Well, yeah, I know. This is week number nine, and we just can't seem to to move on yet, and and I'm I'm glad we're not moving on without visiting today's topic, and I really want to highlight and thank uh, Matt for for some input from him and his influence in in helping to shape some of the thought that's in this message, um, and I want to I want to I thank Matt publicly. I've told him this numerous times, but I want to thank him publicly for for the dimension that he brings to our leadership. When we sit in a meeting, well, you can clap. I've, I've grown to appreciate and look for the foundational and theological angles that Matt thinks through the ministry of the church. At. It's not just a matter of, of what works and whether the air conditioning's right. Uh, it's a matter of why do we do what we do, Biblically, where are the theological boundaries that promote what we say and why we say what we say? And he does an excellent job of of bringing those insights to us. If if this was a a medical team that was caring for the health of the church, and that would be kind of the guy in charge of the blood pressure. You know, it's kind of, you don't see blood pressure. You know, I mean, by the time somebody exudes something on the outside that they've got some kind of a heart problem going on, uh, you can see that on the outside. I'm, I'm glad that, that some of us can see that kind of stuff on the outside. But Matt thinks at a blood pressure level. And I'm very grateful for that. And so part of the reason why you're going to hear this message today, as a matter of fact, I probably would have given it to him if it weren't for the fact that he were on vacation last week and didn't want to ruin his vacation by having his wife say, Honey, are you studying again? Um, <laughs> beaches and study don't go together real well. So, um, so I'm, you're going to hear from me today on this topic. The... Title this morning is Setting a Precedence for Freedom. Setting a Precedence for Freedom. And I want to open up with two questions. One, what makes me convinced that I should, I should experience increasing freedom in my life? What makes me, what makes me think that I should, not only not only from me, what makes me believe that Christians should experience freedom? increasing freedom in their lives? That would be one question that I hope we will answer today. Second, what can rescue me or you from the condemnation that resides in the expectations of should? If I stand up here this morning, invariably, depending on how you're wired, if I stand up here this morning and I say, Christians should be free. If I say that this morning, there will be some who are wrestling with freedom not experiencing it, falling on their face, failing, feeling as though their sin is, a, is more of a historic reality for them than freedom is. What will rescue you in that moment from the condemnation that comes here nine weeks later into a series and perhaps your dealings in the category of freedom have not increased? You're still wrestling at a level or getting interested in wrestling at a level? Or suffering defeats, sin still has days of great victory in your life. What will rescue you from the ensuing condemnation that, that chases after the sense of, I should be here, but I'm here. And hopefully we're going to answer both of those dynamics just in the content of the message today. But let me set my premise before you about setting a precedence for freedom. This is in your outline. When God and his accomplishments are at the center of my theology, a precedent gets set. That one allows me to face my sin and my failures. So let let me just highlight this because this would be a cause for church dysfunction. Some of us don't know how to face our own failures and sin. We just don't. So when failure and sin occurs in our lives, we just flat get weird. And when we get weird, we start responding to people and things around us. And next thing you know, we don't, we don't like this thing. We don't like that person. We don't like the church. The church is full of hypocrites. It's got this wrong. I don't like the way that guy preaches. And My covenant group leader doesn't. Blah, blah, blah. And quite often, we don't trace back that I'm weirding out because I'm failing and sin is a little bit too much on the headlines of my life. And I don't know how to respond to it. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I feel condemned. I feel judged by others. I'm not going around those people. They just judge me. Have you ever had this experience in your life? Know anybody who has? I want to I say that part of the problem there is a theological one. It is that we don't understand something about who God is and what He has done that would actually help me in the day that I do fail and have to deal with the fact that sin is a little bit too much involved in my life. So hopefully today will help with that. Secondly, when God and his accomplishments are at the center of my theology, a precedent gets set that, secondly, empowers me to walk in faith and expectation. Well, there's nothing that drains faith out of our life or the sense of future expectation out of our life like failure does set before me what i'm supposed to be doing as a christian and let me fail at it and 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 and then catch me in a moment and say keith what are you anticipating about the future failure that's what i'm anticipating more of the same now when i've done that what i have done is theologically i have put me at the center of my theology and based on my stinky history i expect more of the same in the future And the problem here is my theology has become distorted. I have pushed certain things to the edge of it, and I have put other things in the middle of it. And maybe I've never thought about this. Maybe I've never thought, why don't I get along? Or why am I in the fourth church in the last three years? Why am I, why am I, why am I? Theologically, your theology may be tending to force you in those directions. Today, what I want to introduce to us, is and I've used this phrase before, all of us have, is is discovering what's at the center of our theology. See, theology has contours to it, it has it has variety of components to it. Some have different emphasis and some we should we should look at in a certain way that's different than others. When you read the Bible, you you find out major and minor components. You find out primary and secondary issues are all throughout the Bible. If you don't think that way, when you come to the Bible, you will have a tendency to elevate certain things to all the same level in your theology. And quite honestly, when you do that, you're going to push something into the center and nudge something else out of the center. Now, maybe an illustration I can use here is, you know, right now, everybody look at me right now. Okay. can you see anything else but me? Yes, you can. Right? I mean, right now I'm, I'm looking at Stevie. I can see Peter. I see Peter. I see him waving at me. Uh, I always am keeping an eye on Peter, by the way. <laughs> he thinks I'm not looking. I'm, uh, I'm always looking, watching him. Uh, but, but see, there's, there is the center of my focus and then there's peripheral focus, Right? So all this, I mean, I see I see you people over there, Bill. I see what you're doing right now. I'm looking at Stu, but I can see Bill. You know, there is, if you will, theologically, there is peripheral theology. Which is important, it's part of my sight, I have to see it. It plays a role. I can't just do away with it, but there is center of my theology. There is a focal point that I'm supposed to be looking at. Now, if I change from looking at Amy to looking at Peter, my peripheral vision changes as well. So if I decide to make Matt, who's more often the peripheral vision, if I make him the center of my focus, I can't even see Bill anymore. Now, theologically, depending on where you set your focus and your attention, is going to help you to see certain things or not see certain things. And what I want to discover today is where is your theology centered? What are you focusing in on? And really, ultimately, you have two choices in this. You either have a God-centered theology or you have a man-centered theology. There's really not anything else that you could put there, I believe. Man-centered theology, I put a little definition in your outline. It's a view of the Christian life that places the emphasis or the focus on man's contributions, man's responsibilities, man's actions, and man's belief. That's where the focus gets set. And I think you can find some of these dynamics present in in certain movements that have been in the body of Christ. Movements haven't been completely wrong. But I think sometimes there's a danger in certain movements that certain things are going to get into the middle where they don't belong. Um, Holiness movements. Churches that place the emphasis of their theology and their practice on, on holiness... Holiness typically meaning human behavior, how you're doing, how you're performing, how well transformation is taking place in your life, how godly you are as you express godliness in your life. And and when that becomes too close to the center, it's going to bump something else out of the way on its way there. Uh, Faith movements. Faith movements have a tendency to put man at the center The emphasis in a faith movement is on man's belief, the problems in your life. I mean, faith movements have pushed the sovereignty of God to the edges of the theological universe. You know, staring at man's belief, Uh, your sickness is based on your belief, your health is based on your belief, your prosperity is based on your belief. Everything is about what you believe. You control the destiny. Now, when that happens, and that's the center, sovereignty gets pushed to the edge of my theology. And I barely have any room for it. I barely have any ability to say, God is involved in my sickness. God is involved in disfavorable circumstances that I'm not making as much money as maybe I could. Do you understand? Man man wants to climb in the middle of, of the focus, by the way. There's a tendency for us to do that. So whether it's those things or whether it's garden variety dealing with life, where historically I become more convinced about my contribution to my Christianity than I am convinced about God's contribution to it. And if most of us analyze our contribution, we can't help but face the reality. I contribute failure and sin on a regular basis. And when you start dealing with jail cell issues, you start dealing with habits and things that look like our personality. You can look back over a long history of I have always, I have always, I have always, I have always failed and sinned and failed and sinned and failed and sinned. And You stop right now and you say, how do you feel about that? I feel condemned, especially after the messages that you've been preaching. I'm, I'm serious. Some of you guys really don't like me right now. I'm just glad I didn't preach all the messages. Peter preached the one on repentance. I bet you really don't like him. Because, <laughs> you know, you're feeling like I'm failing and you're rubbing my nose in it. I'm failing and you're standing up there saying, like, you, this shouldn't be happening. Well, let me. I don't want to chase too many side comments here. Let me, let me, let me highlight something just for a second. Uh, and this actually, I recommend, again, this CD. I hadn't listened to the CD in years, but I listened to the CD I recommended to you last week. CJ had done on, on uh, the Idol Factory. And he makes a comment in here that it's just very helpful. He makes many comments that are very helpful from that CD. I do encourage you to, to get it. It's free. Um, but he made the observation, and I want to highlight for us, there's a distinction in preaching the Word of God that's different than sitting down with one individual and counseling them. You know, any of the guys that are up here preaching the Word of God, there are hundreds of people in this room in all kinds of different places. This is not a counseling appointment. This is not you who right now feel like, hey, I've been, I've been failing in my area for years. Okay, you know what? If you've been failing in an area for years and you come visit any one of us for a counseling appointment, you will not experience preaching in that moment you'll experience an individual's situation that is on the table being taken apart and help being given and counsel being given into that particular dynamic now preaching is not a counseling appointment preaching is the faithful delivery of the full conviction of the word of god with all of its power with all of its truth quite honestly, sometimes with all of its intolerance. Sometimes the Word of God doesn't tolerate another position. You know, nowhere in the Bible you do find the Bible saying, uh, you know, there's no other name under heaven given by which men may be saved except the name Jesus Christ. But then again, you know, there could be exceptions. You know, The Bible doesn't do that. It proclaims the truth. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's very exclusive. If you find yourself outside of that, that statement sounds harsh. It sounds uncaring. It sounds unsympathetic to where you are. Now, a similar way, I stand up and say, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's get about being free. Now, if you've been struggling in an area for 20 years, I sound like I don't care. I'm unsympathetic. I'm not getting in there with you and saying, hey, 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 jerk. Don't you think I've tried doing what you've been saying for all these weeks? Don't you think I've tried that? Understand, I'm preaching the word of God. I'm not having a counseling meeting with you. If you came in and anybody I think who was in here who's ever come in for a counseling meeting, you would know the difference between sitting across the desk from me sharing the truth into your life situation is different than preaching the word of God. But I think to some degree, I want to push this back in your lap. If the response to the messages has been an irritant, it may be that there's something at the theological center of your belief that makes it an irritant. Because you're at the center of your belief. Your contributions, your failures, your sin dominate the center. And on the periphery is the grace of God, the sovereignty of God. The character of God. You've pushed those issues theologically to the edge. Oh, they're still in the room with us, but I can barely make out what Matt's doing over there. I can, be, I can a little bit. I know he's there. I'd probably see him get up, but it's not at the center of my focus. Now, you're not called to be at the center of a focus. You're supposed to be on the periphery. Who God is and what He has done is is what's supposed to be at the center of our staring, our, peripher- our periphery issues are supposed to be on the side. God-centered theology would be an emphasis, or putting our attention, placed on who God is and what He has done. The emphasis and the attention in God-centered theology is on who is God and what has He done. That's my that's the point for me to stare at in my theology. That doesn't mean other things don't exist. It just means that's where I put the emphasis of my theology is on those things. And if you look in your outline, I'll just make this point real quickly. because this, this is a great challenge to, to balance these, these components. And please identify this in yourself. The Bible has periphery and center all throughout the pages of the Bible. We sometimes want to go one or the other. Because if I put the emphasis on the grace of God, somebody's going to come along and say, well, what about behavior? What about people who don't care about that and they're doing something different? What about I know a guy who yeah, he believes that and he's doing this and this and this and this. See, you know, pull the behavior back into the middle. That's what's being asked in that moment. Now, I want to make sure you hear I'm not throwing behavior out the window. It is a theological issue and a very important one. Right? We've read through all kinds of verses. I'll put a couple in your outline. First Peter two eleven. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts. Second Peter. Uh, Second Timothy. Now flee from youthful lusts. We're called to abstain. We're called to flee. Colossians three five. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity. Passion. I mean, you, got a, you have a sexual immorality problem here this morning? You need to stop it. You absolutely need to stop it. That's important. And we've gone through weeks and weeks of instruction, commands, informing. All these things need to get put on and find a place of expression in our lives. That's important. But let me say this. That is not the center of our theology. And if you make it the center, you're going to have to force something else to get to the edge. And the moment you do, you have created a Christianity that will not work right. God, who He is, His contribution is to be at the center of our theology. Look at this illustration that gets played out in John chapter 15. And I put a little phrase in there. The leaves and fruit are an expression of the root. The leaves and the fruit... Are an expression of the root. Now, if you come to a, find a tree, fruit-growing tree, whatever it is, if you can't find a tree, what is most observable is the leaves, the branches, and the fruit. That's what's most observable. What you don't observe, which is most important to the tree, is the root. The tree grows out of the root. You kill the root, you kill the tree. You, you can pull fruit off of a tree and it'll stay alive. You can cut branches off of a tree and it'll stay alive. But if you destroy the root, you've destroyed the tree. And that's what Jesus said. Remember John 15? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And does that mean the branches have no significance and the fruit is, is no, of no significance? No. There's significance to the branches and the fruit. The section of Scripture that this comes from is about the, the gardener who prunes so that more fruit can be produced. So, so fruit matters. Behavior matters. The things on the outside matter. But they're not the center. They're not the vine. The vine matters the most. I need to make sure my attention is on the vine, not on the branches or on the fruit. Oh, well, does that mean I don't pay attention to the branches or the fruit? Does it sound like that's what I'm saying? I do pay attention to the branches and the fruit. I do see it. It's it's in my periphery. I see Peter. I see what's going on there. But that's not my attention. That's not where I set my focus in my theology. Let me use an illustration here then. We're going to just look at the obviousness of this throughout several passages. Your outline, it says Christianity has precedence. And that's why I titled the message, Setting a Precedence for Freedom. Christianity has precedence to it. Now, I, can, I just know right now that Evan and Bill and Jane, and Pierre Grimion, all the attorneys that are going to, listen to this or right now chomping at the bit to correct me the way I'm using legalese. But here's my understanding of precedence. Precedence is, is where a a previous precedent precedes something that precedes this court case has had a previous court decision that's been made. This went to trial or went before the courts, the courts listened to the evidence and they made a decision. And, and what Lawyers do is when when they come to argue a case to be decided for their client, they cite precedents. They say, "Well, the courts have already addressed a situation just like this one. So and so versus so and so back in 1968, the decision was made. Blah 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 blah. Now, what happens is that decision that precedes this one becomes the reason for this one to be made a certain way. Does that make sense?" We live in a land today, the most famous case that if you're not an attorney, you certainly at least know this one. Roe versus Wade. Maybe we didn't realize Roe v. Wade was simply that was what was on the legal document. Roe v. Wade. That's why it's called that. And the courts considered information and made a decision. And we live in a land today that today the issues of the legality of a woman taking the life of a child that's in the womb was preceded. By this decision, and in our country, you're allowed to do that because of a preceding decision. So there's, there's a precedence. There's something that precedes, and that's true in Christianity as well. The Christianity has precedence. There's things that precede other things. Things out of which our actions are to flow out of them, if you will. They came before. They have greater importance. The word precedence, in your outline, the definition is the condition of preceding others in importance, order, or rank. Now, this becomes critical when it comes to human behavior. And human behavior has everything to do with whether we feel condemned today, whether we're feeling okay about our walk and who we are, whether we're anticipating the future with faith. So when the Bible goes to address human behavior, I want to make this point today and look at a couple of passages is the Bible, when it argues for holy living, it does so on the basis of precedence. If Paul or Peter in these passages were attorneys, their mode of thinking is, your behavior should look like should look like this based on this reason. They point away from the behavior first in order to help the behavior ever get established. And where they point is to the centerpiece of theology. Who God is and what he has done. That's where they point. Let's look at a couple of passages. 2 Peter chapter 1. We looked at this passage last week. Turn there with me. 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me start with the branches. We start on the periphery here because we we tend to quickly feel the impact of statements that are on the periphery they they touch us quick second peter chapter 1 look in verse 5 we just start with the commands this is where we tend to find condemnation working its work in us make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's quite a list, isn't it? How's everybody doing? I mean, if you just looked at your own life in light of that list. It'd be very easy for me to to feel like uh, deficient. That's how I feel. I read that list. It's got everything from virtue and faith. I'm not always walking in faith, knowledge, self-control. How's everybody doing self-control? Good? Any impatient people here today? Any overeaters? Any lazy people? Somebody slept too long? Came in late this morning? Right? You got a self-control problem, right? So it just wouldn't be, if we did a little bit of mental work, it wouldn't be hard to get on the short end of this passage. I'm not doing real well in light of these. Now, what if you stay there? What if you push that to the center of your theology? What if how you feel about your Christian life and your future is based on how you're doing in these categories? Now, you'd never write a theology book stating that's how you should do it. But you might do it every day in practice in your own life, right? But Paul, when he— uh, pardon me, Peter, when he presents this passage about how our behavior should be, he cites precedence. The reason he argues for behavior is not for behavior's sake. It doesn't originate in behavior. It doesn't originate in man. It originates in something about God. Let's back up. In verse 5, the little phrase that I left out of verse 5 was, For this very reason. For this reason. Why act a certain way? Why overcome? Why say no to urges? Why say yes to this? Why develop character? There's a reason for it, apparently, and Paul's just, uh, Peter's just said it earlier. Verse 3. His divine power, listen, look where the gaze is here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason now, do all these things. So, now listen, Peter doesn't ignore peripheral vision here. It's almost as though when he gets his gaze set right, he can see something over here moving. And he starts to address behavior. But that is not the focal point of his theology. The focal point of this theology is who is God and what has God done? Who is God and what has God done? Who is God and what has God done? Now, I'm going to give you one more passage that we're going to look at together just for a second. Colossians chapter 3. I'm just picking these because we've already used these. Colossians chapter 3. Now, allow me just a moment to highlight the peripheral issues here. And then we'll go back and we'll adjust our, our gaze at these passages. If you started in verse 1 of chapter 3, there's commands. Commands imply responsibility on our part. Human responsibility. You're responsible and I'm responsible to do what this passage is about to tell me. Verse 1. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Now, immediately, you and I could come under conviction right now. Couldn't we? If there's any category of of sin and deficiency in us, it would be between the ears. It would be in what I think about, how I feel about things, and what I imagine, and and all these issues that we struggle with by way of, of enslaving components of our lives. Up here is the area where I'm letting go of the wheel first. And so if anything, I know my thoughts are not always seeking that which is above. Setting my mind. I know I'm not doing that. So the command, I'm already meeting myself. The deficiency of it. Look in verse 5. Then I'm told, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's all these commands that are being given. Now, if you follow the train of thought, Paul is making an argument for why behavior should look a certain way based on precedent. There's a reason why we should and can do those things. And they're the centerpiece. Back up in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Remember this verse, see to that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental principles. These are commands. See to it. You don't get captive. Still behavior, still behavior. But why? In verse nine, here's why. Here's the precedent for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. I mean, why, why don't do that? Why avoid certain behaviors? Because in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. Something about Him is the reason for what I'm going to do. Verse 10. And you have been filled in Him. Now something He's done. Who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Something He has done. This is the precedent for why I can, over in chapter 3, look in verse 9. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Stop doing this. Don't, don't, don't do that. Now, how quickly does Christianity devolve into do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that? Oh, I don't I don't like those people. I don't like that church, you know, because they're into do this and don't. It's just a bunch of rules. Now, listen, before you freak out about rules, you might want to make sure you've read the Bible. Because I find Paul right here going, do, don't, do, don't, do, don't. I don't know what you're hearing. But what's critical is do, don't is a peripheral issue and not the centerpiece of his theology. I think that's what needs to distinguish a church that's handling the gospel accurately. Because the reason, he says, the reason for you to stop lying to each other is because you've put off the old self. Well, where did I learn about that? Well, that was something that was done by God on my behalf
1: at the cross.
0: A circumcision not made with hands. You guys weren't involved. God did it. He did it on your behalf. It's true of you. Where do I get that? I don't get it by staring at the periphery. When I stare at the periphery, I find out I'm a liar. I'm selfish. The works of the flesh are evident. They're all about me. I'm at the center. I don't know how I'm ever going to escape this. I don't know how I can ever do anything you've said so far. I don't know. The future is bleak. But if God is at the center of my theology, I have a reason to believe something very different than that. And that's why Paul says, your behavior can change. It can change because of precedent. There is a precedent. I cite what God has done. I cite who God is. And that's what he does all throughout this passage. Now, I put one more passage in here. I'm not going to look at it for the sake of time. But Romans chapter 6 probably would be the poster child for this component in Scripture. That as it says, do not, do not let sin reign over your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. Don't do that anymore. A couple of commands are surrounded by 14 verses worth of what God has done for you. What he has done. He has done this. He has done this for you. You've been crucified in him. You've been buried with him. You've been raised with him. Did you do any of that? I'm just curious. Anybody here climbed up on the cross with Christ? Anybody here? Do you realize that by God's doing, you actually did exactly that? And you didn't actually climb up. He put you there. You were you were in the cross with Christ. You were being forgiven in the cross with Christ. Now, if that's not at the center, how many here to this morning are wrestling with trying to figure out how to get forgiven? Because you're staring over here at something else that's supposed to be in the periphery. Your own failure is highlighting something. But see, you can barely see how forgiveness is supposed to come. And you're freaking out. I'm telling you, part of the reason why we get really weird and difficult to be around is because our theology... Is distorted. It's not that we don't have components of this, and this might be the biggest deception of it all. We all acknowledge, well, yeah, I mean, I believe in the cross and Christ crucified and God love and His grace. I mean, I got all that. Yet you got all that in theology, but do you have it on the edge of your theology, or do you have it at the center? It can be very deceptive because it sounds as though I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. Good, but tell me what you're staring at. What are you setting your focus on? That's what's so critical. Let me uh, move to this other point here. Saved by grace and walking by grace. Saved by grace and walking by grace. Sinclair Ferguson says, How easily we fall into the trap of assuming that we remain justified only so long as there are grounds in our character for justification. And we start getting uncertain about how God feels and relating to us, that's always based in my character, my level of transformation. Again, I have pulled myself into the middle, and based on how I'm grading, God is now doing, which is simply not biblical theology. I'm going to make that point for just for a few moments here. But if you remember that verse, it's in Colossians 2 verse six. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So, so don't, don't create some change here. Don't, don't, I'm saved by grace. Oh, it's all of grace. I was a horrible person. Can I tell you my testimony? I was terrible this, this. I had drugs. and uh, We go on and on and on, and then God saved me. But then all of a sudden, when we go to walk with Christ, all of a sudden all the rules have changed now. God no longer deals with me on the basis of grace. God now has strapped himself to my performance, my character, how I'm doing, and his favor is being held hostage by me. Now, that wasn't true before. Could we tell anybody, oh, come just as you are? Just don't stay if you, you know, <laughs> it's, just, it's just not good theology. As you receive Christ, also walk in him. Well, how did I receive him? I want to highlight that for a moment. But let me go back to my premise here because I want to see how this addresses us. When God and his accomplishments are at the center of my theology, a precedent gets set that allows me to face my sin and failure and empowers me to walk in faith and expectation. I want to see how this verse helps with those dynamics. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's, let's first get acquainted with how it is that we receive Christ in the first place. How did we receive Christ? How did that transaction occur? What were we bringing to the table? What motivated God? How did this even take place? Because the way in which we receive Christ is also now the way in which we're to walk. As you receive Christ, so walk in Him. So this dynamic needs to be understood because it's still functioning in us today. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you... We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. if we keep reading here, the next verse says, but God, being rich in mercy. And we begin to get an explanation in the next few verses about God saving us. Now, so if you, if you want to timeline this thing or get some historic precedence for this, what in us preceded God's acts of grace toward us? What set the precedence... For God to be merciful and gracious toward us. I sure hope that we have read enough of the Bible to know that the precedent got set by something in God, not by something in me. Because this verse tells me I was a child of wrath. The precedent I set by my life was one, God, you should judge me and destroy me under your wrath. That's the precedent my life was speaking back to God. I was dead in my trespasses, not inactive, dead, separated from God. I was passionate to live and follow the course of this world and the God of this world. That's what I was for, whether I did it as a nice person or a jerk. Bottom line is my heart was not submitted to glorifying God. I wanted to glorify me I wanted to make a name for myself. I wanted to be significant for my own reasons. All that stuff was what was in me. That's what preceded the day that God came in his grace to save me that's the condition that i'm in don't for a second think that that i began to morally perform and god then began to respond to my moral performance i began to be a better person i get, you know i just began to change that's not what the bible says what preceded the day of grace was me being an enemy of god i may not have felt that way but that's what god says about it romans Chapter 5, verse 8, I'll put this in your outline. But God shows his love for us, right? There's the center, his love, his actions, his character. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, been justified, been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, when did this occur? While we were enemies, not after we signed the peace treaty with God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we are right now reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. Right now. I'm reconciled to God right now. Good performance, bad performance, historical performance, future performance. I am reconciled to God right now. And then it just makes sense. And this Bible verse tends to tweak this out. That if while I was an enemy of God... God's grace came to me, not because I had done anything to cause it to come. Then doesn't it just make sense? This is what this Bible verse is trying to say. Doesn't it just makes sense that if once you've become God's friend, that you can expect the grace of God to come to you. Well, you don't understand how, how I, mean, I haven't done one thing, which you've talked about throughout this whole series except become angrier over my issue. That's where I'm at. If you're a child of God, you're still on the grounds of a friend of God. But if you need some assurance, when you were his enemy, he came and got you. Not because you were doing so well. You were on a streak. I was on a roll morally, man. When God couldn't help but respond. You know how arrogant you'd be if that was the case. There'd be no room for grace being glorious. There'd be no room for humility. In your worst day, God comes to you. You may be struggling and failing in an area, and it needs to be addressed. There's peripheral theology that needs to touch that. But it does not determine who God is going to be to you. That only happens when you become man centered in your theology. See, when you're man-centered in your theology, God God can only be great if you have great faith to make Him great. God can only be for you if you have given God a reason to be for you. See, nobody... This this is goofy-sounding stuff. None of us actually want to believe this stuff, but we live it. We practice this. We remove the doctrine of justification, which is basically what God did to make us right with him, we remove it. And we we put something else in its place. We put human activity in its place. Now listen, regardless of where you come from in your religious background, people who have been saved for years can do this today. I can make my behavior the basis for God to do whatever it is he's going to do. And in that moment, I'm at the center and God's in the periphery. And this is no small issue. This is, a, this is an issue of salvation. It is an issue of how I relate to God. If you look in these verses here, the clear statement is we, is what we have versus what we hope we will get. See, what I hope to have is a performance thing. I hope to be able to perform enough to be able to get that one day. Justification is never presented that way in the Bible. The acceptance of God The the being welcomed and reconciled to God is never presented in such a way that you are to set out to perform to a certain level so that one day you hope to have it. The acceptance of God is a work done by God completely on your behalf. William Plummer says justification is an act. It's not a work or a series of acts. It's not progressive the weakest believer and the strongest saint are alike equally justified. Justification admits no degrees. A man is either wholly justified or wholly condemned in the sight of God. There's, there's no working toward it. You don't get warmer. You go from cold to hot instantly before God. That's how the doctrine of justification works. But it has everything to do with where you put the center of your theology. You may, not, you may have never thought about this, but I had a conversation. I was on an airplane a few months ago, flying back, I don't know where I was coming from, I was by myself. And I sat down, and anybody flying into New Orleans, I just want to know, why are you coming here? And so I struck up a conversation with this guy, and, and he and I start talking. And he's from New Orleans, and come to find out, and nice guy. Um, as he and I begin to talk about who we are and what we do, uh, he come to find out he is a Catholic theologian. And he's working as an insurance agent right now, but he was a Catholic theologian. Well, that just made for interesting conversation between the two of us. Uh, but eventually, this point became the point of our discussion, the basis of justification. And so as we talked through those dynamics, there came a point in our conversation where I, I, I just had to tell him, because he, was, he was, theologically he knew a lot, and this guy knew his stuff. And he was a nice guy, had an, a genuine affection for God. I, I don't know if he probably was saved. But his understandings left much to be desired. And at some point, I I kind of highlighted for him that his theology was man-centered and not God-centered. Well, no one likes to be told that. That's not something he was like, well, thank you. You know, that was not something he liked. Um, He tried to explain to me why that wasn't the case, but he had already hung himself with two phrases that he used in our conversation. When it comes to salvation, he said, ultimately... Ultimately, it's our decision that determines salvation. So he said that at one point. I kind of put that in the file. He came back later and he says, you know, it's really our salvation hinges on our decision. So a little later on, when he didn't like the fact that I said your theology is too man-centered, I explained. I said, well, let me remind you what you've said already. You said, ultimately, and hinges. You have placed your contribution in salvation at the center of your theology, and you have pushed God's contribution to the edge. Now, listen, I don't know what theological pool all of us come from in here, but that would be a huge problem to function in the Christian life with your contribution being the centerpiece and God's being a secondary one. Now, are both of them significant? Yes, they are. And there's a mystery in how those two get along with each other. They are both important. Uh, you've been in this church long enough. and matter of fact, one of the reasons why I think that was right to suggest this issue needed to be addressed was because for the last eight weeks, we've been pounding on human responsibility. Because it matters whether you obey. You want to be free? You want to taste freedom? You want to smell the clean air of freedom? You're going to have to take your feet and walk out the jail cell. You want a reason for why you're going to obey God to do that? That has to do with your theology. What's at the center of your theology? Let me go back to my Ephesians here so I can close in just a second. How does this help me face my sin and my failures? How does this help me face my sin and my failures? I think one thing is already clear. If when I fail and I sin, I, I adjust who God is and what he's going to do in my life, well, then I don't have a God-centered theology. I have a man-centered theology. And what you don't need when you're lying on the ground, having messed up and your face is bloodied, what you don't need is, is God, a God who can only be great if you get it together. Well, that'll really inspire you, won't it? You've failed 30 times in a row. You don't think you're going to get up on the next try and give God a reason to be God, are you? You're convinced that, that your life is never going to change, and now the, the faith is beginning to drain out of your life, and the condemnation is coming in like waves, and you can't get it off of you, and you walk into a church service and some guy teaches a message on repenting. And you think he's got the problem. He just, you know, he doesn't understand, or he's that's he's narrow minded. where's the real problem? The real problem is that you're at the center of your theology. And God can't be God without you giving him permission to be God. But that's not what we find in the Bible. And in fact, I have a reason to believe based on the fact that I once was God's enemy and he was super gracious to me. And now I'm his friend. I might be his friend with a bloody nose. i might be on my face screwing up for the 50th time, but I'm his friend. I have a reason to believe God will be gracious to me. Look in Ephesians 2, after we got our great resume going, first 3 verses. But God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why? God, why did you do this? Because of my love. No, 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 you meant, God, you love me because I became real lovable, right? No. I loved you because of my love. Well, God, that's circular thinking. Yeah, and you can thank me for it later. <laughs> So in other words, God, your reasons for your actions begin and end with you. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. it's exactly what I'm telling you. Do you know how freeing that is? Do you know how freeing that is? To know that God is not controlled by my deficiencies in sin. Oh, so liberating. Even when we were dead, verse 5, in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right? This is the center of my theology. It's what God has done and who he is. Whether I feel like I'm seated in heavenly places, I am. Whether I feel like I've climbed the ladder to be seated there or not, which I could not, I am seated there. And look what's going to happen in my seat. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. So let me get this right. I was an enemy of God. I was serving my own passions and desires, glorifying myself. God comes to me as you receive Christ, so walk in him. God comes to me moved by his own grace, his own mercy and his own love. And he rescues my life. And he says here before you even know me, because actually, before you even exist, I'm going to do this at the cross where my son died. So you don't even exist yet when I'm doing this to you. So it can't possibly be on the basis of how well you've done. I'm going to reach into the corridors of time and I'm going to pick up a life that, as far as you understand, doesn't even exist. And I'm going to crucify you with my son, forgive you of your sins and place you in heavenly places. I'm going to do that. And then when I stick in heavenly places, I'm going to start thinking of every way on earth I can possibly bless you and give grace into your life. So I can demonstrate something about me. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. I will confuse you with my grace. You won't understand why I'm being so good to you. Now, I put God at the center of my theology when that happens. Now, what if I screw up? Well, now I have a reason to behave differently. Not because I'm trying to get God to become God gracious to me. I have a reason. And it follows if you keep reading Ephesians. But by grace, you've been saved. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Now, listen, for those of you concerned about peripheral issues, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I'm I'm staring intently at God, who he is and what he's done, and I can see out of the edge my behavior. Created in Christ Jesus. Works prepared beforehand. There's even a precedent for my behavior now, isn't there? My good works have actually been prepared beforehand. How do I know that? Because I'm not looking at my good works. I'm looking at him who did them on my behalf in order for me to have them. Does that make sense? I know we have covered a lot of ground today. But this is so critical. Some of us don't think at a theological level. You understand that if you don't think at a theological level, the trouble we get into in dealing with our own behavior. So how do I face my own sin and failures? Knowing I am reconciled to God, I am justified, I am accepted. I'm as accepted after I've screwed up as I was before. I'm accepted on the day that I've, I've got a history of, of messing up uh, as much as I'm accepted on the day when I'm on a hot streak. My justification hasn't changed one bit. I am accepted by God. And therefore, I'm his friend, and he has seated me in heavenly places, and he has every intention today to pour out his grace upon me. Well, that touches the other issue as well. How does this empower me to walk in faith and expectation? Well, I have a reason now, don't I, to to get up and walk, because I know God's for me, in this God is not against me. His wrath is not coming my way. My, my contribution isn't steering God into a different course. God has found a reason in Himself to be gracious toward me. And He's determined that He will. And He has said that He's prepared works for me in advance. So if I've been falling down in this area over and over and over again, I have reason biblically to believe that God actually has prepared works for me that are different than the ones I've been walking in in this category. Well, I ought to get up and get about that then. See, I have a reason for walking this out. Go ahead and and, and come. Listen, on a a practical level, if if we get man-centered in our, our theology, soon it's not just us individually who's at the center of our theology, it's other people as well get at the center of archaeology. Man, so why, why am I changing my behavior? Why am I performing? Well, either because I'm trying to get God to accept me or I'm trying to be accepted by people. And I, I've just signed on for what I would call the, the poison pill of performance. You just poison Christianity. And you live in the misery of it. But you might also discover that... Some of these elements might be why you don't like people that are here this morning. (laughs) Why you don't like the body of Christ. It may not be because people in the body of Christ are really all that bad. Probably not any worse than you are, or me. But it may be because we have put them at the center of our theology. And now we're, we're trying to do stuff in order to gain something from them, the same way we try to do stuff in order to gain stuff from God. If you will, you you get held hostage by that. And, And if your theology won't allow God to be God outside of what you make Him to be, that's a horrible place to be because every time you screw up, it's as though you get reminded, I've just set God back two paces. He can't possibly bless my life. He can't possibly help me now. Every time you screw up, you get reminded of that. At some point, I'd want to quit too. Let I start realizing God's only as good as I am. Let's stand up together. Lord, would you help us right now? Help us to consider how we feel about our performance. Would help us to survey the moments of great frustration that perhaps accompany our lives. Would help us. Help us understand, Lord, whether we have pushed you. To the edge of what we believe, and we've made other things more important. There may be some folks here this morning that, that you have placed religious, moral goodness at the very heart of your belief system. And you'd stand here today, and if I were to walk up to you right now and say, If you died right now, would God accept you into His heaven? How would you answer that? It tells you what's at the center of your theology. If for a moment, as I asked that question, what came into your mind? was a thought that, well, I'm a pretty good person. Now, I'm not as bad as others. Not perfect, but I I think God would accept me. And your means of reaching God is not a biblical one. And today, the very best news you could hear is God wants to rescue you from your own abilities to be good enough for God. The Bible says you can never be good enough for God. And that feeling of condemnation that you may be experiencing, it's a just feeling because it's reminding you that your efforts keep on falling short and they keep on falling short and they keep on falling short. But today, if you will receive the gift of God's grace into your heart, if you will just stop and say, God, I'm not going to try and work my way to heaven, I'm not going to try and work to be good enough. God, today, I open my heart to you and I receive the gift of your goodness into my life and I turn away from me trying to be good enough and I recognize your son was good enough for me what he did was good enough for me to be accepted and if you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone then today God will reconcile you to himself absolutely reconcile you he won't he won't put you on probation He won't tell you you can come now. You've really got to perform real well in the next five or six years, and we'll see. Today, you'll go from being a child of wrath to being a child of God. In His family, seated in heavenly places with His determination that He will bless you for the rest of eternity in ways you never could have imagined. And that's who you're going to become in the hands of God. If you've never made a decision like that, and you're here this morning, but you'd like to do that... I'm going to ask you, just raise your hand and wave at me. and say, I've never done that before, but I would like to do that this morning. Is anybody here who's never done that? Well, if you're here and you'd like to do that, I'm, a, I'm a hanging out in the front of for a few moments. Come find me. If you're not quite sure how to do that, maybe you're sure in your own heart you just know i just need to pray i need to trust god and i I know i need to respond this morning but it's important this is a peripheral issue but it's an important issue that you do respond it's not enough just for you to hear all that god has done and who he is to receive the good of it involves responding so please don't leave here with a greater opinion of who god is but never having made any decision different in your own life I'd like for us to spend a few moments and maybe Matt will lead us in worship. I'd like for all those who have become frustrated with the Christian life, you have lacked joy in your life. I'd like for God to, to help with you, with Him getting back in the center of your theology. I'd like for the Lord to minister to you. So if you are wrestling with these performance issues, I want to ask you to come forward. I want to ask you just for for you and the Lord, I want to ask for the Holy Spirit to minister to you, to take these truths and to begin to adjust theology for you. Be able to set himself at the center and begin to release you from basing your Christianity on how well you're doing, basing your feeling good about your life on whether you think other people think you're doing well enough. Or whether you think you're doing well enough. Listen, we've said a lot in this series about what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And maybe, maybe you need to have God's help to rescue you from how you've responded to eight weeks of teaching. Maybe you've misplaced God. and This morning you're waiting for God to, to wait for you. come let God put His arms around you. Come let God run down the driveway and you've prepared your speech like the prodigal son and He won't even let you finish the sentence. Because His passion for you is about something in Him toward you. It's not awaiting the day that you'll do something right. It's about something in Him that longs to throw His arms around you and pour love on you and pour grace on you and welcome you home. And bless you. And in heavenly places to say, look, I want to give you this and I want to renew this and I want to refresh this in your life. Listen, don't, don't miss out on letting God give you the reason for your future to be different. The reason for you to be different in the future isn't because God said you better do it. The reason for you, the precedent for you to be free in the future is based on who He is. And what He has done. Anybody else? You just need to come and enjoy God's presence. guys are receiving from the Lord let's, let's all take a moment in our worship here for a few moments it's to enthrone God in our own hearts to place Him at the center to be refreshed again by staring intently at the center of who God is and what He's done so that it becomes again a real reference point for us and all that we want to be in life flows out of the very center of who God is what he's done.
2: Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. Speaks righteousness for me. stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. Your blood Speaks a better word Than all the empty plains I heard upon this earth it Speaks righteousness For me It stands in my defense Jesus It's your blood What can What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash us pure as snow? Well, But Your blood, nothing but Your blood, King Jesus, King Jesus. The cross, Your cross, testifies in grace, tells of the Father's heart to make a way for us. Boldly we Not By earthly confidence It's only by your love
1: Sing that again Your cross
2: Testifies in grace Tells of the Father's eye To make a way for us Now boldly we uprose earthly confidence it's only by your love love, yeah. What yeah. can wash away most of the gospel? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood. Nothing. your blood, Jesus Lord. One can wash away our sin, What can make us hold again. Nothing but your blood, nothing but the blood. This grace that rescued me from eternal hell. It was Your father's heart of love for me that sent Your only Son. Your father's heart that planned the cross to save each hopeless. can see your heart of love. What drew me to you? What drew me to you? No spark, no spark of loving interest in my heart. What attracted me? When I could only stumble in the dark. What awakened me and called me out of hopelessness and What unlocked my heart and sent upon my soul the Spirit's breath. Yes, Lord. It was your father's heart, and love for me, that sent your own son. Your father's heart, that planned the cross to save each hopeless. It was your father's. It was your father's heart, and love for me, that sent your own son. Father's heart that planned the cross to save us I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about You. It's all about You, Jesus. I'm sorry. sorry, Lord, for the I've made. But it's all about You. It's all about You, Jesus.
1: The hymn writer wrote these words. A song called Faith Reviving. From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on Thee? Complete atonement Thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid whatever Thy people owed. Nor can His wrath on me take place if sheltered in Thy righteousness and sprinkled with Thy blood. If Thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my stead endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding Savior's hand, and then again, Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood. Don't fear.